If you are looking to become a better leader in the outdoor adventure world, in the business world, or both, this is the Leading Steep Podcast. I'm Barry Cruz. In this podcast, I'm speaking with some of the leaders and adventure guides I admire most from around the world. I'll try and ask them the same questions you would, and I hope they'll share stories and practical ideas that we can all use to become better leaders. Welcome to the Leading Steep Podcast. Ever since I'd come up with the idea for this project and the notion that I was going to interview world-class adventure guides, Richard Bangs has been on my list. If you somehow enjoy the adventure world and you've never heard of him, well, you're in for a treat. This is a very special conversation for me. I first learned Richard's name back in about 1984. I was in a gear shop somewhere and I saw a poster of a big gray Avon professional raft with a rowing frame at an obtuse angle in a giant rapid on the Zambezi. Richard wasn't rowing this boat, but the red and yellow letters stood out. Sobek. I had to look it up at the library. Somehow, I got a copy of that poster. It hung in my dorm room for a couple of years next to Blade Runner. And when I started guiding myself, the people who worked at that company who rowed those boats still felt like major leaguers to a little leaguer. Richard Bangs has been called Indiana Jones with a conscious. You'd be hard-pressed to come up with a closer metaphor or a person as well-traveled, as well-adventured as Richard is. He's been to all corners of this planet and on uncharted whitewater all over. I'm talking about nearly 40 first descents on some of the world's most challenging whitewater trips. Some now dormant, drowned in damned lakes. But consider the Blue Nile, the B.O.B.O., Apuramac, Koru, Tachinshini, and perhaps most legendary of all, the Zambezi. He is inarguably one of the patriarchs of modern adventure travel. He was a co-founder of Sobek Expeditions, which in the early 1990s merged with Mountain Travel to become MT Sobek. But wait, there's more, as they say in late night TV ads. He's also the author of 19 books, hundreds of magazine articles, producer of dozens of television shows and movies, a travel and technology pioneer, former CEO of Outward Bound, a founding executive team member for Expedia, and has a new technology venture called Stellar. More on that later. Richard has lectured at the Smithsonian, the National Geographic Society, and the Explorers Club. So for him to take time to speak with me, well, let's just say I'm very pleased to bring you Richard Banks on Leading Steep. Richard, thank you so much for joining me on the Leading Steep podcast. I am honored and grateful to have you speaking with us today, and I can't wait to ask you uh, so many questions. Finding research on you is like falling down an Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole. There's so much there. There are so many things to discover and to read about you. So thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Barry. It's an honor and I'm grateful to be here too. So I like what you're doing. Thank you very much. I, I hope it will inspire folks as you and the whole business of river guiding has inspired me. So one of the questions I like to start with is thinking back about how you got started as a guide, how you got into the adventure world. I started in high school. I grew up in the Potomac River in Bethesda, Maryland, outside of D.C., and my father worked at the CIA. And he discovered, the CIA was based in Virginia, we were on the Maryland side, that he could canoe to work. He would go back and forth, and every now and then I would go with him, and I fell in love with, with canoeing at that point and started to canoe up and down the eastern seaboard with a group called Canoe Cruises Association. And that group went to do the first canoe 
descent of the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon when I was in high school. I couldn't go. I couldn't afford it. And I'd nearly never been out of the East Coast. But they came back and they showed these videos that were just super eight videos that were just phenomenal with, you know, waves that were just beyond my imagination. It seemed like something out of a Spielberg movie or something. They were so unbelievably overwhelming. And these guys did it with closed canoes. And, and I, I thought, I want to do that. I really want to do that. So when I went to college, I wrote a letter to the outfitter who hosted the canoe trip with my group. It was Ted Hatch, Hatch River Expeditions. And I beefed up my resume. I'd been on many rivers in the eastern seaboard, and many of them had the same names as rivers in the west. So there was a Green River, you know, there was a, a Salmon River, you know, all these rivers up and down the east coast. I peppered my resume with all this experience, which they appropriately mistook for Western River expertise, and they hired me on the spot. And they, they were just beginning the whole concept of river rafting for the common man. Before this, um, and this is the late 60s, really only the, the elite and very few people would, would do a, a river trip on a Western river. It just wasn't widely available. So I was part of, a, of an early crew that was hired to guide people. And I was, wow, you know, my identity, my, my worldview just spun on this axis that was so overwhelming, so profound and powerful. When I got out as a young guide, I was 19. Actually, I think I was 18 when I first went out to be a professional guide on the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. It was a mind bender for me, and, and I loved it. I loved it. I mean, it, hard, it was hard for me to go back to academia. The rest of the world was just a trudge compared to um, what was happening as a guide on the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. So that was my, my beginning. Amazing. So you started a year earlier than I did. I started when I was 19 years old, but largely inspired. And I think I came at what I've called the dawn of the self-bailing era. So sort of the second disruptive wave in, in rafting, whereas uh, we were following pioneers like you. Well, how, did that, how then did you convert being a domestic American guide on the Grand Canyon then to this incredible international experience that you've had over so many years? Well, I, I have to give Don Hatch... Ted Hatch's brother, a lot of credit because he was hired in 1965, I believe it was, by Lowell Thomas. Lowell Thomas was a partner in introducing Cinerama, this new concept where you would shoot something with three cameras, and they felt it might be the future of the, of the movie experience. And they had shot a roller coaster ride in this format, and it was they showed it at theaters around the country. And they had to be specially equipped, but it was it was incredible. People were dizzy. They walked out of the theater. They screamed. They they were immersed. They thought it was amazing. So Lil Thomas had this idea to have a scripted film about looking for Shangri La in the Himalayas. Um, in this case, the Karakorams, because he decided to shoot it on the uh, Indus River in Pakistan. And he hired Ted Hatch to navigate this boat that had the camera strapped onto it and have this equivalent of a roller coaster ride down these giant waves. It's an enormous river, the Indus. We did the, the first descent some years later. He set off with a professional actor and a crew, and it was so big, so much bigger than the Colorado River, that Don Hatch, who was probably the world's foremost river runner at that point, capsized in the first rapid. And the lead actor drowned. 
So, you know, it was an incredibly tragic moment, and they decided that they should try to complete the film, so they moved down to something called the Gilgit River, and they, they shot a few scenes, and they actually completed this film, and it was released, and, and Cinerama existed for a while. There's a Cinerama dome here in Los Angeles that, that still exists. How the West Was One was shot with that, but um, the Lowell Thomas film never really got a lot of traction. But what did get traction was that Don Hatch told me about this experience when I was sitting around the campfire with him on, on I think, the Green River. And I was, I was just sucked into this whole concept. And I was, wow, they started in the Indus. It was bigger than the Colorado. They didn't do it. I'd like to go there and see if I could finish that. So that was suddenly high up on my goal list of, of things to do that sort of began my quest. I ended up going to Ethiopia first for overseas because my high school best friend, John Yost, and my partner in Sobek, his father was the DCM, the Deputy Chief of Mission, at the U.S. Embassy in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And John had been flown over as the son for vacations and had trekked around and seen all these extraordinary rivers that fall off the plateau. Ethiopia is the Tibet of Africa, with giant rivers that, that carve deep canyons, deeper than the Colorado, in all, all points of the compass, none of which had ever been really explored, with one exception, the Blue Nile, the main source of the Nile proper, where in 1968, the British Army decided to attempt an expedition which was a failed expedition and several people died. And I, of course, I read that book and was riveted by it. And also it was on my bucket list as well, the Blue Nile. It, people tried, professionals tried, they didn't, couldn't do it. I felt that I really understand river running at that point it was a good guide. And I thought, you know, I want to go to Ethiopia with my friend John Yost and let's see if we can do some first descents. And that's, that's what started Sobek, really. You have 35 first descents to your credit with Sobek, which in the modern world is, is pretty incredible. As you mentioned, all these rivers were virgin at the time, right? There was just a, an unlimited choice of you to do if you had the, the right kind of skill and the right kind of logistics. And timing. I mean, it, it would be near impossible to do 35 first descents today, you know, because so many of those rivers are gone that were available back then. Which was your first, and I, I really wanted to ask you, of the 35 first ascents, which perhaps is the most classic or the most memorable for you? Oh, that's trying to pick your favorite child. Come on, that's not fair. <laughs> well, our first one was the Awash River in Ethiopia. So it was, it was intended to be a, a warm-up. It's not very far out of Addis Ababa, and it begins with a beautiful broad waterfall, and you could put the boats in and raft downstream past lots of wildlife and crocodiles. And Sobek is named after the ancient Egyptian crocodile god. And most of the rivers in Ethiopia end up in the Nile basin itself and contribute to uh, the Nile itself. But the Awash turned out to be something far more extraordinary than I had ever expected. And we ended up taking, I think it was a 12-day expedition following its course from its beginnings near Addis Ababa all the way to its end in Lake Abai, where it's a net, now Djibouti, which was then the French territory of the Afars and Isis. But it, it goes to the lake and then dries up, so it has no exit. It's below sea level at that point. So we met extraordinary people along the way, the Danakil, who were famous for their testicular trophies. In order to reach manhood, you had to go 
cut off the balls of somebody um, who was a rival, and then and then you would carry them as a badge around your belt. We met a lot of Danico and played the harmonica when we passed them so that they would see us as a non-enemy entity. And we met a lot of crocodiles and hippos and hyenas and lions and all the, the fears you get in Africa of diseases like schistosomiasis and malaria, all the unknowns of, of traveling down a river for the first time. It was an extraordinary experience, and it fueled us, all of us, to come back and say, we can't stop here. Let's go do the next one. And the next for us was the Omo, which was, which was the first giant river that we, we negotiated as a first. And the Omo runs all the way into Kenya and Lake Rudolph, Lake Turkana now. But it's a long, long, major river that flows south from Addis Ababa and is everything the Grand Canyon is, but then many times more so because it has rich culture. At the time we did a number of peoples and tribes that had never seen white people or people outside of their canyon. They had no idea they existed in something called a country of Ethiopia. They were um, an isolated first contact population. And and those those interactions were just amazing. And then, of course, the wildlife is as rich as any place you can find in Africa with no human contact. And then it was a deep canyon with gigantic waterfalls that poured in. The scenery was godlike. The whole experience, again, was amazing. And it became sort of our cornerstone river trip for Sobek when we, when we launched the company because there was nothing like it in the world to be able to navigate this river. I have to think our listeners are imagining what that looked like and what that felt like to be the first Caucasians there to see these experiences. And I have to tell you, you know that that I'm making an analogy between adventure leadership and business leadership and the wild conditions that you talked about, about diseases and wild animals and testicular trophies and all that. It sounds a little <laughs> bit like the business world today in some way. Very much like the business world. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's a hyena, eat hyena world. So um, it can be challenging. Yeah, there are a lot of challenges. I mean, I, I think one of the one of the many but most apt comparisons between the two is being able to embrace the unknown and actually finding finding some element of excitement and joy in chaos. Certainly in the case of exploration, physical exploration, rivers, mountains, et cetera, if you find meaning, purpose, and clarity in chaos, then you likely can find success. If that daunts you or if you, you want to retreat or turn away rather than go forward, you probably have the wrong personality for this type of mission. And the same is very, very true with business. As you well know, I've, I've navigated through the business world as well as, as the adventure world, and I've, I've enjoyed a lot of commonalities between the two. I want to tie up something with you there around the experiences. I could spend hours and hours and hours listening to you talk about your adventure experiences at the dawn or maybe the golden age of whitewater rafting and seeing all these brand new rivers. What I'm really thinking about, though, is are the people that, that you were involved with and the guides in particular. And so the common thread, the theme in my book is what I'll call guide ethos. And my assertion, Richard, is that great guides bring skills and characteristics to leadership that are really applicable almost anywhere in the world. I'm talking about caring and compassion and planning and communications and logistics. So I wonder of the people that you'd experienced in the work that you'd done, probably seeing thousands of guides over, over your time, what's guide ethos mean to you? I think that there are many important 
elements of, of ethos when it, when it comes to the guide culture and what makes a successful guide. But there, there are two that come to mind. One is an innate curiosity. And that curiosity goes beyond what you may be seeing or experiencing as you travel through little-known or unknown regions, but curiosity about with whom you are traveling. If it's an authentic curiosity, as I believe it is with mine, I really want to understand and know and get to be uh, in the shoes of people with whom I'm traveling. So I can enjoy different perspectives, different points of view, different past experiences. And I think that may boil down to some sort of selfish element in, in that every time you you meet somebody new on a trip like this, you, you first of all, you have some common threads in that tapestry because they're there because they are seeking what you are offering. I mean, in a way, it's a marketplace, but they are also there because they find delight in the same things you find delight in. So there, there is this family of people who have that point of view. They're willing to take risks to go beyond their comfort zone and find some sort of satisfaction and meaning out of that, as you do as a guide. And if you can connect to them by wanting to know who they are and why they do what they do and how they got where they are at this point, I think that that is something that, that is very gratifying to them and it, it creates a connection. But it's also immensely gratifying to me as a guide and, and to other guides who have that, that ethos. The second one is teamwork. I think you, you have to, at least in, in my world, you have to embrace the qualities and the successes that can come out of, out of teamwork. I've often thought about the differences between mountaineering and river rafting, for instance. As you go up a mountain, you start off as a team and, and all the logistics are worked out. It's very very precise. Everybody has their assigned task. The equipment is all tested with multiple redundancy. But as you go up the mountain, you become more and more isolated. And, and altitude is the devil in this particular dynamic because you cannot communicate with your teammates the higher you go. It becomes harder and harder to communicate them. It's an internal struggle that happens. So you're, you're feeding some sort of internal quest the higher you go. And everything external goes away. You have more and more layers of clothing. You might have oxygen. You have less and less consciousness. You don't even have the energy to ask a question. Running out of resources all the way around, right? Oh, yeah, that's exactly. You're running out of resources all the way around. And it becomes a singular experience. To navigate a river is a team experience. And the deeper you go, the more... The more you go down a river, the more you rely upon the team and the more the team becomes a team, a group of individuals with a singular purpose, which is to survive, you know, a rapid and to be able to get to camp together as, a, as an entity and, and create a site that is satisfying to all. And there is, there is I think there is little that's more um, enjoyable or satisfying than achieving those those small goals that you do together, survival goals, goals to some sense, by getting through a rapid, by working together. Very often in life, in a career, you could spend years working on a team and trying to build it and get to success. But in the course of, of a weekend, you can discover that same sort of satisfaction by working with a group of people, often strangers, who bond and find... Um, interpersonal 
connections and, and worth by undergoing this type of exercise. So those, those would be the two that I would call out. There are many more, but I would say curiosity and teamwork are two that are very important to the successful ethos of a guide. When I hear you talk about curiosity and I, and I translate that to the business world, I think about compassion and understanding who you're working with and what you're doing. There's a, a fun book that I read. It's just sort of an allegorical book called The Dream Manager. And it's about a manager appreciating and wanting to understand the dreams of the people that, that work for her or work for him. And, and That's a great one. Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, this, this part of your ethos, as you mentioned, if you are compassionate and, and curious about what folks are doing, then you can support them in that way. And you can pretty well expect you're going to get loyalty back for that as a, as a response. So I love that. I've had so much fun getting to know my clients on rafting trips as well. I've met such fascinating people. I'm sure you have too. Oh, absolutely. I, I look back and I think that was, that was the most treasured part of, of my being an active guide was to meet people from all walks of life and to, to spend time with them in a way that you can't spend in, in other realms. You're facing danger with them and, and risk and you're getting through it together. And then you're, you're camping together, you're eating together and, and you're, you know, you're, you're sleeping not that far from one another. You're 24 hours a day with these people. That doesn't really happen in, in normal life unless you're married to somebody. So it's, it's, a, it's an extraordinary opportunity to really peel the layers away and, and get to know another person. And one of the things that I, I experienced, as I know you did too, is every guide will, will size up the, the guests when they first arrive and they, they load onto the raft. And you ask questions, you get to know them a little bit. And the first day, you have all these opinions about who they are, and you put them in certain categories. But what has been almost always a universal truth in these sorts of trips, particularly the long ones, is that the judgments made on the first day are almost always wrong. And, and the accoutrements, that they, accoutrements that they might they might have or the badges they might brag about in the first day, their car, their job, their, their income, their net worth, um, you know, whatever it is, their geography, that all strips away. And by the five, sixth, seventh day or something, you get to know the core, the essence of a person. And they're there because there's something that's very common with you as a, as a guy. They want to, to see and experience and be delighted and learn from the, the environment as, as you do. So there's inevitably a connection and you inevitably find out that person is somebody who's very like-minded, who has, you know, a soul and goals and, and, and dreams that are very similar. And, you know, there was a group of many years ago now, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, something called Project Raft, which was Russians and Americans for Teamwork. I don't know if you remember that group. A couple of my friends, Jib Ellison, a, a fellow I know, and, and uh, uh, several folks that I know. It was a great concept. It was before the wall came down, and the idea was Russia had a big rafting community that, no, that nobody in the West even knew about and was very different in the, in the techniques and structures and architecture of their rafts and their techniques for navigating rivers. But it was a very robust community. And then Jib Ellison and, and, and Mike Grant and others were able to make contact with them and start doing exchange programs. And the idea was, look, if this is during the Cold War, if we can raft together, then we can understand that our differences are very, very small, yet our commonalities are very, very deep and rich. And this is 
you know, let's get young people to go back and forth so they will understand young potential leaders where we might find a common path going forward. I thought it was a great concept and there were a lot of terrific things that came out of it. And I think, you know, leaders and, and business people and others who have, have crossed that, that border and, and X'd out that enigma and, and stigma that came from the Cold War and, and found, found a way to, to connect to make a nexus between us. And, you know, that happens on, on a smaller scale on, on every sort of river trip or almost every wilderness experience. That's a really good thing that comes out of these. I wasn't able to make Project Raft as I had already begun my white-collar career in business, but I had so many friends who were, who were involved. I, as you mentioned, Jib Ellison, Mike Grant, a couple of other folks. I mean, of the guides that you worked with, and of the people that you explored with, are there partners and friends of yours who really stand out as being exemplary guides? And I wonder why. What 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 was it about those folks who you that you assessed as being great leaders? Well, there are many. Sobek, to some degree, was self-selecting because there was. We started off as an international river guiding company and expanded to manner of outdoor adventure activities. But for the first ten years or so, we were pretty much exclusively rivers. So any river guide who was working on any of the Western rivers quickly aspired to be on the Sobek roster. So we were inundated with possibilities. And the ones that we ultimately hired were people that, that showcased these qualities that we talked about, but other qualities as well. And, you know, a deep enthusiasm for what we were doing and, and the world as a whole the interconnectedness of all things. Compassion, I think, was, a, was an important element. The fundamental skills to be a, a good guide, not only includes you know, cooking and guiding and, and having empathy for your, your guests, but the, the, the techniques of rafting, but, but also problem solving. Again, there's sort of an interface with business there. The overseas guiding experience, at least in the first 10 years of Sobek, was drop parachuting people into exotic locations, New Guinea, Borneo, Tanzania, wherever, and saying, look, here are your resources. Can you solve the problems to make this expedition work? And there's some people that just love to solve problems. And they would never stop. No is not in their, in their repertoire. They would figure it out by hook or by crook. You know, we had a lot of successful guides who, and many of them went on to be successful business people. I think these qualities were nurtured and, and allowed to, to articulate in, in these settings. And they, they took those skills, those learnings to um, the business place and succeeded there as well. That's really where I think that, that, that I've identified this guide ethos, right? That, that these folks can be successful in business as well as they had been as guides, like you said, problem solving and communicating and dealing with un, the unexpected and the natural curiosity of caring for people and all of that. I, I agree with you. Talk to me about in your exploratory trips and in working with your partners, maybe some of the more challenging situations that you, that you faced and, and how you may have dealt with the adversity of those situations. I mean, there were many in 35, 35 first descents and so many trips. I'm sure you encountered many challenging situations. I wonder if anything stands out for you. Well, I mean, there are a lot that stand out. <laughs> you know, a first descent is something that definitely fires the soul because you have so many obstacles to overcome and so many <laughs> challenges that you have to 
decipher, decode, and figure out how to overcome. And that's pretty, pretty damn exciting if, if, you, if you like that type of challenge. And I certainly did. There were lots of incidences where we met up with obstacles, political, locally, with peoples sometimes. Um, you know, we were attacked, we were robbed, we were held at gunpoint. With wildlife, you know, we've had a, you know, a number of wildlife attacks. Many of our boats were bitten by hippos and crocodiles throughout our, our African experiences. But early on, we had some major tragedies. And those, I think, defined and refined how we, how we went forward. One of my original partners in Sobek, a guy named Lou Greenwald, who was a very close friend of mine, I'd met him on the Colorado. He was a client of mine, and we were simpatico. We, we had the same worldview, the same curiosity, the same supercharged enthusiasm. And he signed up when we started Sobek to be a partner and, and came with us on our first trips in Ethiopia. Ethiopia's got many rivers, and we did quite a few of them. On our descent of the Blue Nile, where the British had failed, Lou Greenwald got, got stuck. Uh, you remember these. Back then, we had these Mae West life jackets. Yeah, big, thick in the front life jackets, big, big, bubbly kind of. Kind of. Yeah, and they had, a, they had a clip, a metal clip on the front, and you had to put the metal clip into your chest so that it wouldn't clip onto a rope. One of Don Hatch's top guides had died, I think, a couple of previous years previous. I think it was on the Yampa River because he had clipped it the wrong way and a boat capsized and he clipped onto a bow line and, and couldn't get off. So on the, on the descent of the Blue Nile, there was a very slow capsize where a, a boat hit a rock and it started to ride up on it. And one by one, people were able to, to jump out onto the shore, but Lou was last in the boat. And when it got to be his turn, the boat went over and he started swimming, but his, his life jacket was clipped the wrong way and it clipped onto the bow line as well. And he was dragged downstream and he drowned. That moment for me to lose one of my closest friends and my partner in, in the company put me into an emotional tail, tailspin and, and, and to a point where I started to question everything I, I thought was gospel, everything I thought I had discovered about the merits of, of adventure and risk. You know, you always go, ah, oh, risk is, is great. Look, you make it through risk, uh, you assume risk and the rewards are on the other side. But you don't often entertain, you know, what happens when things go the wrong way. And lose death just sent me into, into despair. And I, Sobek sort of went into, uh, into a rest, an integrum or hiatus, I think, for a year. I hung up my life jacket in the closet. I went to graduate school in journalism and sort of got into studies and tried to forget everything about it. Because I go, why, why would I endorse or embrace something that could so easily, so quickly kill a friend? Don't other people understand this when they go rafting? How can they be laughing when they go through a rapid? You know, what's, what's wrong with them? So I shook it all off for about a year. And then I remember a turning point after about a year, a group of friends of mine were going on a rafting trip and they called and said they were passing through town. Could they stay at my place on the night before? 
And I said, sure, of course, come on over. And they came in, and as we sat around the table, their enthusiasm, their energy, their adrenaline was so high for the trip they were about to take, this river trip they were going to. It was, it was contagious. And they left, they went, they had a great time, they came back, and I started to, to rethink things. I go, you know, um, there, is, there is some extraordinary validation in what's going on here. Is it better to sort of sit at home and not take risks and just be protective? Or is it better to assume the risk, knowing that there's a downside, but if it goes the right way and if you are sensible and, and judicious about what you do going forward, is that worth taking the risk? I'd read a lot of Hemingway when I was when I was in school and beyond. I was always a fan, but one short story that always stood with me was The Short Happy Life of Francis McComber, where this guy who's sort of stuck in his job and goes on a safari and his wife goes has a, has an affair with the guide, something I could relate to, uh, and many of the guides could. But he finds himself in a situation where he's being attacked by a lion, and he's able to raise his gun and shoot this lion before it kills him. But in that moment, in that last instant of life, it is transcendental for him. He finds happiness and purpose and joy for just a minute by by taking on that sense of danger. And I kind of related to that. I go, look, if you can find that type of, you know, apotheosis, if you want to say, in moments in your life, it can make your life worthwhile and meaningful, and it's worth it to take the risk to do it. So I ultimately, at the course of about a year, I organized a, a river trip down the uh, Chattooga River and invited John Yost and my friends, and we did it, and we capsized, and we, you know, we had some scratches and scrapes, but we had a great time. And I felt like I was back, and I understood why this is something that's actually important. And we have to understand the downside, but we have to embrace the risk and and move forward. I think it certainly adds a texture to life and a color to your life. Over the thirty the, the thirty five years since I started rafting, there have been periods of pause. I lived in England for a couple of years. I didn't raft there and paused rafting when I lived in Boston for a few years. And and there wasn't great whitewater near where I was. I rafted for a couple of years here. I want to ask you about guides in other disciplines as well, because as you mentioned, as Sobek evolved and then became mountain travel, you all expanded your catalog a great deal. And, and for me, I like guides of all stripes. When I traveled to Istanbul, I hired a guide for a couple of days. When I, you know, when I go fly fishing in, in Montana and I don't know the rivers there, I hire a guide myself. Even, even though I am a guide, I really love and appreciate learning from guides. I wonder if you want to talk about the folks that you've worked with and maybe the nuances of the trekking guides and the diving guides and other folks that you've worked with over the years, Richard? Well, I mean, you're right. I mean, we, we have worked and I have worked with guides of, of all dis- different disciplines. And the, there is a, a strain that runs through all of them, a good one. But it's in finding delight and, and meaning and in sharing what you know with other people, with others, with with strangers, and it takes a lot of different. You know, it's like teaching. A lot of a lot of people will will dismiss teaching and say, if you can't if you can't do teach, but teaching is is really one of the most important and I think underappreciated professions there is. It makes all the difference in the world for the future of of a of a student. 
it's often not about the school or how much money or the textbook. It's often the teacher. And it's same with adventure trips. The culture, the destination, the scenery, the physical challenges of a mountain or a river or a bicycle are all there, but it's the guide who will make it extraordinary. And I think guides are natural teachers as well. There's a lot of a, a lot of teaching components about being a guide and a lot of teaching that goes into being a great leader, I think, even in business as well. And now this has become the Zambezi after your first descent. This has become one of the most famed whitewater trips on the planet still to this day. Yeah, and it's an extraordinary trip. You know, where else can you start at Victoria Falls, the greatest waterfall in Africa and one of the one of the greatest, if not the greatest waterfall in the world. You can start right beneath the falls and then journey down through all these basalt canyons. Um extraordinary rapid scenery and wildlife and people and the, the villages that live at the rim who come down. It's an amazing experience and it's very accessible. So who who would have thought? It's more than extraordinary. It's, it's amazing, I like to say. It's amazing. Well, and to, to have been the first down it, it, it looks, the rapids look massive and intimidating. It, the California rivers by by comparison don't even scale. When we did the first ascent, it was right after Rhodesia emerged as, as white majority ruled Zimbabwe. Prior to that, the prior 10 years, it had been a corridor that was heavily landmined, and it was, it was a battle zone, basically. So we were really right there just when it kind of reopened. And it was an, an historic thing. The president of, of Zambia, Kenneth Kayunda, decided to come down and do the formal launch, you know, with a champagne bottle on, on, on our boats and give a speech. He had no idea what was going on. But, but we had National Geographic there. We had the London Times. We had all these ABC, because we did an ABC special on it. We had all this media. So the, Kenneth kind of had to come down. He didn't know what was going on. So he asked me to write his speech. So I did <laughs> and, and had him thank Sobek many times throughout the, the speech. And then uh, he positioned himself, there's, a, there's a, a famous bridge that spans the Zambezi below Victoria Falls that goes between Zimbabwe and Zambia, and the rapids, some of the first big rapids go right beneath it. So he positioned himself on the bridge after he gave his speech, we had the ceremony, we took the rafts down to the river, we all load up, and the cameras start rolling, and I head out the lead boat because I'm leading this, this expedition, and I go into the first rapid, and... Uh, I immediately ride up this wave and I miss a stroke in the oar and I capsize right in front of all the media and in front of Kenneth Kayunda. <laughs> and no, and Kenneth Kayunda looks to the camera, I think ABC or BBC or something, and he goes, Is that the way they're supposed to do it? <laughs> and, then, and, and then they named the rapid, uh, my name is Richard, they named it Riches to Rags, is my in, ignoble first, first attempt to, to run the Zambezi. going to jump ahead a little bit because frankly I was rambling. I asked him of the 19 books he's written, if we were to pick one, which would it be? If I had to recommend a, a starting book if somebody wants to get into the overall, I would say Lost River, The Lost River, which is the through line is a is the first descent of a river called the Takaze 
in northern Ethiopia, which is the deepest gorge in Africa, 7,000 feet deep. So half mile deeper than the Colorado to the Grand Canyon. And we spent 23 years trying to figure out how to get down this river. And we finally got the old Sobek team together and we did that first, first descent. But it also touches upon many and many of the other rivers and first descents and the dynamics of the people involved and how we got there. We had won the National Book Award for Outdoor Literature. I think it's a pretty good book, and I would, I'd recommend that as a starting. I have to find it. I love your books. I have several. I was, in fact, going back and reading Riding the Dragons Back last week and studying that. What an amazing time and story that was with the Yangtze. That was wild. I mean, a lot of people died trying to run the Yangtze. Just to, to clarify for your listeners, uh, nobody died on our expedition, but there were associated expeditions that tried to, to make the first descent of the river who were not uh, successful, and there was a lot of fatality involved. You were speaking about that earlier, and one of the things that I find about having been a guide is the fact that I usually remain more calm in tense situations because most of the situations I deal with in my day-to-day life, business life, are not life and death decisions. Whereas on the river, you are genuinely dealing with real risk and risk management. And it's not a joke. And I think this is one of the things that probably makes us better leaders as well is dealing with these real world life and death situations. I think that is a really, really good point. I did a stint as the president of Outward Bound, and Outward Bound was started in the wake of World War II with an educator who believed that, or or knew, he studied, what happened to sailors when they went Outward Bound, leaving the shore to go Outward Bound to battle, that when a ship was sunk, a British ship, inevitably it was the, the the elder and the more experienced who survived whereas the young and swarthy and in great shape people panicked and drowned. So he said, what the concept is, is if you can learn to face adversity, you know, in some manner, particularly in the wilderness, it will be something that becomes an an integrated uh, and ingrained lifelong process for dealing with issues through the rest of your life and outside of the wilderness. I think there's a lot to that, that uh, philosophy. And I think guiding really really leads a personality down that path because you you do as you said you meet crises all the time and you you learn to figure out how to deal with the crisis particularly if you are a, a guy dealing with many of the people who might have strong opinions or might be dealing with fear they're out of their comfort zone so you have to not only find solutions but soothe them be a, you know in some ways a, a den mother and a psychologist and and a teacher and a soother as you puzzle out how to solve this problem. And if you can excel as a guide, you can do this. That dynamic becomes part of your own personal repertoire. Then that is something that can be accommodated and exploited in all other facets of life. And you find yourself, when there's a panic situation, not panicking, but trying to figure out in a calm and and sensible way how to get through it. You hear about Shackleton kind of notionally, and then you read about him, and he really was an extraordinary leader, showed great emotional intelligence and great empathy to his people and extraordinary direction, very clear. And it is an amazing story, and there's so much to learn there. So I And nobody, nobody died, so you, you can't argue with his success. 
Richard, you remain active with Sobek Mountain Travel and the extraordinary catalog of trips that they do around the world. I'd love to hear more about your involvement there. And then further, I really want to talk about your film projects and everything else you have going on. Empty Sobek, as it's called now, is still doing very well and still exploring. I've got trips coming up this year, assuming that COVID allows. I've got a trip to Angola this summer and a trip to Ethiopia later in the summer and then looking at trips to Bhutan, the Sudan, and uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, many of which are are pioneering. Angola, for instance, nobody's done a trip like this to Angola, so it will be pioneering. Anyway, that company's doing well. But in the uh, early, early 90s, I became fascinated with uh, digital media. I was deeply involved in creating our annual catalog. I mean, would spend months calling the material, the imagery, writing the descriptions. And I lo- enjoyed that process of gathering all this material and defining our trips and putting the itineraries in them. And it was a dream book. And you know, I would distribute them and, and a lot of people responded well to what we did. We even partnered with some publishers for a couple of the editions. Simon & Schuster did one of, of the adventure books for us, or did two, I think. But anyway, so um, I became a little frustrated as, as I put so much of my spirit and time and energy and evangelism into, into these, these dream books. But I would give talks around the country and stuff, and, and I would meet new people and hand them a catalog, and you would see their, you know, their, their eyes sort of glass over, and you could tell they had no interest in what I was doing. And then I also found it a little frustrating in that I had to boil down these profound experiences, like a two-week trek in the Himalayas, let's say, into a thumbnail picture and a paragraph description. And I thought, well, you know, I can't adequately describe what's going on here. So when digital media first started to emerge in the early 90s, I jumped into it because I thought, this is a way that we can communicate the richness of these experiences uh, in a multi-layered way, in a multimedia way. And we, we began by doing DVDs, of very early, well, CD, ROMs back then, of our catalog where we could add all sorts of, of sounds. You could have the crunching of your boots on the ice and you could have the gamelan music you could you could have um the wild the roar of wildlife all these things along with multiple endless imagery for a destination you have day by day and video and it was like wow this opens up everything it show showcases so much more and the dimensionality of what what happens if you take an adventure trip i was so excited with that and then when the internet first sort of reared its head with the Mosaic browser, I, I had been following this company that was in Sebastopol that had created sort of a rival to the, the Mosaic browser called the Global Network Navigator. And I drove up and spent the weekend with these guys. And I said, look, we're in the travel space. Can we do something with this new browser? And he was very, very excited about this. And and together we went and created, which I think was the first travel website. And then I went on the road to sort of promote it. And it was a, it was a breakthrough. And then from that, we were able to figure out how we could actually use the satellite systems to share an, a live, ongoing expedition experience. And our first major one was Antarctica. So we went to Antarctica with a, with a full satellite system, and we covered it day by day 
and it was interactive so that people could ask questions. We would upload video and photos, and it was real-time unfolding in Antarctica. Nobody had ever seen anything like this before. We got a lot of press that came out of it because people were kind of excited with what we were doing. One of the people excited about it was um, Melinda Gates. I got back from that trip. This is in 95, I think it was. And I got a call from Melinda. She was Melinda French back then and hadn't married Bill yet. And she said, look, I love what you're doing. Can I fly you up to Microsoft? And I never entertained anything about Microsoft ever. But I agreed to her overture and, and she flew me up wined and dined and had me meet a few of the key people, Bill and Nathan Mervold, who's the chief technology officer and a few others. And they said, look, we would like you to come on board for Microsoft and create something similar to what you've been doing. And that was a soul searching moment for me because um, things were going fantastic at Sobek. I'd been running it for 20 some years and loved the, the fact that I could explore all these different notions within within the, um, the construct of, of Sobek, you know, including things like digital media. But they kept persisting. And I finally said, okay, I'll, I'll give it a try. It's a new journey. So I moved up to Redmond and went to work for Microsoft and created a product called Mungo Park, where we would send relatively famous people, very famous people sometimes around the world, and set them up so that they could report live from, from their destinations. We had Martha Stewart in Newfoundland and Tom Clancy covering a space shuttle with Lyle Lovett motorcycling through Chile and, you know, on and on. And it was, it was a tremendous project. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the hell out of creating this thing out of nothing. But it didn't make any money. <laughs> so at some point it was like, how can we make money with this? And then somebody within Microsoft was able to attach what we we're doing to a GDS, a global distribution system that, you know, airlines and hotels use. And then we were able to sort of offer bookings to some of these destinations. And that suddenly showed some traction. So everything pivoted and, and what I was doing became something called Expedia. Originally it was called Microsoft Travel. And we hired a San Francisco-based firm to come up with a better name. And they came up with Expedia, which I hated at the time. I wrote a memo to Bill Gates when, when they first introduced it. I said, Expedia... I spent the next several years, you know, working to, to turn Expedia into a real thing that people understood and knew and believed and, and celebrated as a, you know, as a travel provider. That was incredibly exciting. So, and then from there, after nine years there, I, I was offered the, the gig at, at Outward Bound to be president there. So I moved back east for a year, did that, and then was lured back by Microsoft to come and create a, a series of travel products so I created the travel product for Slate, which was part of Microsoft back then, for MSNBC, for MSN. And then I got a call from Yahoo saying, "Come, will you come to L.A. and create a travel product for us? So I went to L.A. and they, they got behind something they called Richard Bang's Adventures, Adventures with Purpose, because I wanted to make sure that everything we did had purpose. These shows were so great. I, I just think that the, the, the titles of these shows and, and the, the shows themselves, my family watched with uh, it together, and these are just really wonderful shows, Richard. I had no idea about all this business experience, by the way. It's amazing. I, I, I'm going to file this under Guide Made Good, you know, right? <laughs> You've done pretty well. So Adventures with Purpose, the shows. 
Yeah, that was great. So, you know, we first it was with Yahoo, then it was with PBS. And, and you know, along the ways, I was writing books and doing films as well. So, and then finally, I, with a former Microsoft colleague, I got involved with the founding of, of a travel product called Stellar, S-T-E-L-L-E-R, which stands for Storyteller. So I've been working on that for the last few years, which has now become the world's largest travel storytelling platform. You know, and you can go into Stellar and you can search. It's got millions of people from all over the world, every country in the world. You can find stories created. It's primarily user-generated on millions of rafting stories, climbing stories, but any destination you can think of, you're going to find stories on. I have to say that the Stellar app and the stories that you find there are some of the most beautiful things you'll see on a mobile phone. I mean, they are really, really rich. And the way that the media is handled, Richard, I really give you credit around that. It's beautiful. Well, thank you. We spent a lot of work trying to make it into something. And it's you know, it's pre-revenue. We're, just, we're building it at this point. It's got, it's got no income. But we partnered with a lot of great partners. We just finished a project with Germany celebrating all the tourism assets of Germany. And we did one for Australia and Louisiana, Ireland. And we've got many more upcoming. There are no ads on it. It really is all about showcasing the beauty and wonder of, of special places and telling stories about them. It is really pretty. Yeah, I highly recommend folks give this app a look because it's. It, and there seems to be a crossover with Instagram as well. Is that right? Or, or Stellar will post to Instagram, right? Oh, yes, yes. So you know a little bit about it. So we designed it so that you can create once and then distribute everywhere. So you create something on, on Stellar, which has all these creation tools in it, and you can immediately populate it on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, and, and any major platform and embed on any website. But there are important distinctions, we think, between, let's say, Instagram and what we're doing. We are a vertical devoted only to travel. So it's, you know, it's all about the celebration of travel, whereas Instagram, of course, is random. It's everything. Your feed is going to have stuff from who knows what it is. And we have no ads, so you're not going to be interrupted by, by obnoxious ads. Everything is evergreen, so it doesn't go away like a, like a snap thing. It's there, and it can be edited and changed by the author at any time, so you can improve or, or change um, or, or take down you know, any story you create. So it's, you know, it's got all these things that we found frustrating about other platforms that we tried to correct and turn into something that will be you know, useful and inspirational for travelers. I've seen the platform in the app, and I haven't yet established a channel there or haven't yet established a, an ID there yet. So I, I think there's, look for the Leading Steep channel on, on Stellar sometime very soon here. Oh, uh, it's, it's very easy to use. Just go in and build a, make a profile, just sign in, and then you're, you're good to go. Wonderful. I mean, we're all we all have so much media that we're capturing with uh, with the phones now, and 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 I take a ton of rafting video with with GoPros and use the drone. Yeah, no, I've got great footage, so I'm definitely going to Stellar and, and gonna gonna add some things there. And I can tell you, you know, we do a lot of data analysis. Some um, video is far and away the most popular part of any Stellar story. So, the Stellar stories that lead with video have twice. The, the viewage of something that's with a static image, no matter how beautiful the image. People love video. Terrific. I highly endorse it. I, I'm, uh, I got to get started. I've like got a bunch of media that I can, I can see uploading to Stellar already. So fantastic. It's been fun. And I think there's a, there is a common um, wire that, that connects all these things. It is 
again, it's curiosity and it's pioneering. Teamwork and, and passion around what you're doing. I think all these things are so important. Passion is a great word. I wish I had thought of that sooner. Um, <laughs> it's yes. definitely, definitely a, uh, a passage about it in the book as well. I think that passion, passion does, uh, d- does so much for you and can really help drive you, especially through the bad times. Richard, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. I, I really have enjoyed this time. I hope we get the chance to meet and, and certainly even to paddle together or get on an adventure together. If my daughter finds the right adventure in, in, the, uh, in the, the MT Sobek catalog, we, we may just join you for something. Oh, let me know. Let me know. There's always a lot of stuff going on, so I uh, uh, would love to. Congratulations on all of the success and, and how well you're doing with Stellar and everything else. I'm, I'm really happy for you. And again, I'm, I'm extremely grateful that you spent time with me. Oh, it's been a real joy. It's a a nice journey itself, and I hope to to paddle with you someplace, you know, very soon. Anytime. Very soon, yeah. (laughs) Honestly, I could have spoken to Richard for hours, and in fact, I cut this conversation back pretty significantly. This interview was longer than my others will be, but how do you distill 50 years of unparalleled adventure and sage wisdom into 50 minutes? I'm sure you get it. Go find more of Richard's story on Google and through his books. Further, you're certainly going to want to go see the website at mtsobek.com. It's mtsobek.com. And I highly recommend you take a look at the Stellar app as well. There are really beautiful travel stories there, and it's super easy to get an account and set up your own. The credits for Leading Steep are short. I write and record this show myself, but I work with the genius folks at usehatch.fm for production, editing, polishing, and emotional support. I'm also using a terrific tool for remote interviews called squadcast.fm and a tool on my own Macintosh called Audacity for local recording. Thank you so much for listening to the Leading Steep podcast. I'm Barry Cruz, and I hope we'll get the chance to adventure together someday. (music) 